0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Word Weaver Podcast. You're listening to Chapter 16. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing a guy by the name of Harley Rustad. Harley grew up on Salt Spring Island, which, if you're familiar with it, is this really interesting hidden gem of a place on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia, just off of Vancouver Island. And it's known for its community of artists, sculptors, musicians, and writers. Growing up surrounded by a true tribe of people that embrace and foster creativity, it's no wonder that Harley became the talented wordsmith that he is today. A journalist to his core, Harley is reported from India, Nepal, Cuba, and across Canada, where his writing and photography have been featured in publications such as Outside Magazine, CNN, The Globe and Mail, Geographical, and The Guardian. He is currently an editor and writer at The Walrus, an internationally renowned Canadian magazine dedicated to long-form journalism. If that weren't impressive enough, Harley is also a faculty member of the Banff Centre's Mountain and Wilderness Writing Residency and a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. I first met Harley through his lovely girlfriend, Elise, and was so excited to catch up with him to talk about his wildly buzzed about first book entitled Big Lonely Doug, the story of one of Canada's last great trees. The book actually began as an article that he wrote for the walrus and evolved into this compelling narrative about a logger who saved one of Canada's second largest Douglas firs and the preceding fight to protect old growth forests in Canada. Even if you know nothing about trees, the themes in this story and the way that Harley brings these characters to life are relatable and compelling for any reader. That original article he wrote actually won a National Magazine Award, and the book has already been named by CBC and the Toronto Star as one of the top 25 nonfiction books to watch for this fall. I'm so happy that I got the chance to sit down and chat with Harley in the middle of his busy book tour, as it turned out to be a fascinating and incredibly enlightening conversation. Be sure to stay tuned until the end as Harley announces some exciting upcoming appearances on his book tour, where you can meet him in person and also get a copy of Big Lonely Doug signed.
1: I had a wait with words for a while.
0: I'm sitting in your living room with some homemade cookies, banana bread, tea that your lovely girlfriend, Mm. or did you make these for us?
2: No, she made everything.
0: She made everything. Well, this is a very nice, cozy environment to chat about books. And I'm really glad I caught you in the middle of your first book tour, press tour. You're just back from Ottawa and Victoria. Victoria. But before I dive into what you're up to now, I kind of want to take it back to your roots. No tree pun intended there. <laughs> you grew up in Salt Spring Island, which from what I know of it is just this like hidden gem on the West Coast. A lot of artistic people are fostered there. What was your experience like growing up there? And is that what made you want to be a writer?
2: I mean, it was a pretty idyllic place to grow up. Yeah, it is kind of like a little gem hidden in between Vancouver uh, and Vancouver Island. I was born there. Uh, my parents moved there in 1980-81. In and bought five acres of raw land and started building a house. Amazing. And so, yeah, I spent the first couple months of my life in a tent while they were finishing up the first room. That's a cool beginning. Yeah, and so even the, I think the hospital I was born in was surrounded by trees, and yeah, I spent the first few months in a tent. Mm-hmm. And so really, from a very, very young age, was really surrounded by some pretty incredible West Coast nature. And trees. And a lot of trees. That was And that was a huge, honestly, a huge part of of my childhood was was climbing them. Really? Yeah. Um, we have tons of Douglas firs, these beautiful, very slippery arbutus trees on the west coast. Did you learn to name them? Yeah, no, my dad, uh, that's kind of the dedication in the book was, yeah. was to my dad for that. And yeah, growing up, I, I homeschooled kindergarten, and we spent pretty much all of that year and, and the years before that going down to this park, this beautiful provincial park, um, just off our off our house, and he taught me everything—the difference between a Douglas fir and a balsam fir, and between a trembling aspen and a poplar—and
0: that's an education not every kid gets.
2: I feel very, very fortunate for that, and I've been in Toronto now for five years, and I still go home, and I still feel so, so lucky. And I also miss the the community. You yeah. know, it's a great, great community, and as you said, it really does uh, foster a lot of artistic pursuits, and it's the kind of place that people come to from vancouver or come to from the states uh, or from ontario and they come there because they've always wanted to do pottery or they've always wanted to work on a farm Uh, and salt spring is the kind of place that supports that Mm -hmm. you know whatever your desire is whatever your your dream is uh, there's tons and tons of support there whether that's yeah pottery whether that's uh, sculpture or that's writing
0: and is that how you knew you wanted to be a writer? Or did that come later, kind of when you left Salt Spring?
2: It came a bit later, but looking back, my parents were really good at surrounding us with uh, books and newspapers and, and tons and tons of stories. My dad did a ton of traveling. Mm-hmm. And and it's just the kind of person that loves telling stories. So I was surrounded by that that side of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I read a ton as a kid. But it was a, it was later when I realized that I liked writing so I went to India in 2008 for about a year and just started writing these emails like these kind of classic travel emails to family and friends back home
0: kind of your form of a
2: blog essentially yeah a Personal. Per- but I wasn't didn't want to, anyone else to read it except for the I people that, that I trusted better, yeah. yeah and then I yeah my mom said oh this is you know this these are okay and you're good at kind of describing the place just and, okay yeah and then I don't know at that point I I started um thinking about it a bit more seriously. And then a couple years later, uh, I went to journalism school and then-
0: And then did you go right from journalism school? What led you to The Walrus, where you work now as a writer and editor?
2: Right after my uh, degree in journalism uh, at King's, did a short internship in in the UK at the Geographical Magazine, and then went back to India and worked for six months with the uh, Globe and Mail South Asia correspondent, Stephanie Nolan. Um, who's now in Rio, in, in the Latin America correspondent. And so I was working out of her bureau, her, her office, That's essentially, home office, and, and followed her around like a puppy dog and did anything she wanted me to do and research and checking and interviews and anything.
0: Were you also photographing
2: then? Personally, I was, but not. The Globe had a contract photographer yeah. that they would use all the time. Uh, yeah, just for, for myself. And then yeah. pitched a little bit and, and wrote for the Globe a few times and and the Geographical Magazine and, and a few other places. And then came back, so that was about six months in India and then four months in Nepal up freelancing and then came back and realized that I had to move to Toronto. Just for media, there's there's no uh, better place in the country yeah. uh, in terms of jobs and came here with nothing, with no nothing said and applied for the Walrus internship at that time. It was an internship and did that for six months. That was the unpaid internship Mm -hmm. crackdown. And so about a week after my internship ended, uh, I was offered an assistant editor position and have been there ever since. Yeah, it'll be my five year anniversary next month.
0: Oh, wow. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Five years. That goes by really fast.
2: It's gone by very, very fast.
0: And while you were there, have you always written kind of travel, nature, science based stories, would you say? Is that what you gravitate towards?
2: That's what I typically edit at the magazine is a lot of the nature stuff, a lot of the environmental stories. My writing has been a little bit all over the place. I think it was a little bit all over the place at the beginning, but I've definitely uh, written quite a few stories uh, about the environment and Uh, But I'll always kind of dip into something else. I've got a piece in the November issue that is kind of a personal piece that I've been working on for too many years. Yeah, uh, That's finally coming out uh, that doesn't have anything to do with the environment, but it's a pretty sweet story. Did you find it
0: harder to write personal pieces because there's a little bit more of yourself versus environmental pieces?
2: I struggled with that one a lot. It's this kind of too good to be true love story story. about my grandparents writing love letters while my dad was serving, or my grandfather was serving in World War II. Oh, amazing. And this relationship that was forged by mail, and I have all of the letters that were written. No. Yeah, they're and they're pretty, pretty incredible. For, for a 20, 21, 22-year-old oh, kid, you know, talking about his feelings while going through uh, some pretty horrendous things, mm. he was extremely articulate and really, really profound and just... Wow. It's... It kind of opened up their relationship to me yeah. Um, in a way that I, I didn't really know before.
0: Are they still living, your grandparents? No, they...
2: My grandma passed in 2011 and grandpa passed mm-hmm. a few years later yeah, yeah, 2014.
0: Well, what a nice way to keep them alive. And you still feel like you know them, I'm sure, from reading their letters.
2: Oh, yeah. In a, in a way, way, yeah, way more than... Yeah. But it's interesting because it's all one-sided. It's all the letters that he wrote to her. Oh. Um, because she kept them all, and she was in Vancouver, and she could keep them all. Yeah, and uh, he obviously could
0: not be carrying around stacks of letters. Yeah.
2: but there's a there's a really sweet twist at the end. Oh. Um, this sounds like a know, book.
0: People. This should be your next book. It's if a- you don't have <laughs> an idea
2: ready for your second book. Uh, I think it could be. And I think it it could be quite personal. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a grandson digging into their family history and oh, and yeah. and kind of talking about issues of memory and stories and because all that that generation is unfortunately all kind of passing away now uh, quite quickly and so there's very few of them mm-hmm. them left
0: but the cool thing about that generation is that you have these hard copies like your letters whereas now we have the digital age and there's something really nostalgic and romantic about sending love romantic.
2: letters yeah. yeah and you have to wait um 3 weeks or a month for a response and and there's you know not yeah. not to give it away but there's a question that he asks her that he waits a month for oh. a response and I'm very eager <laughs> to So that's in the next
0: issue of The Walrus? It's in the November issue. Yeah. November issue, yeah. okay. So I'll be... Time for Remembrance Day. Perfect. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Big Lonely Doug, your mm-hmm. book that you're on tour for. It just came out September 4th. This is your first book, but it began, as you mentioned earlier, as an um, article for The Walrus. So can you just kind of tell us, I know you've talked about this on your tour a lot, but what drew you to this story and how did it turn from an article into a
2: full-fledged book? Well, the whole thing began really with a photograph. I had was trying to pitch uh, another story. It was kind of an essay written about the state of old growth forests on Vancouver Island, tied to these photographs that I had found uh, by this environmental photographer on uh, based out of Victoria. And I had this collection of images, and half of them were really beautiful, you know. Classic images of West Coast scenes, you know, eagles soaring through the mountains and bears lumbering through the forest and everything was green and happy and shiny. And then the other half was really dark and gray and it was clear cuts and misty and dark and, uh, and really sad. And I remember being in a, in a meeting and trying to pitch this and everyone was just kind of hemming and hawing, you know, this is just, we've seen this before. We've seen these images. We've seen both the green and the gray. And what's new here? What's different? Mm -hmm. And as I was going through the images, I said, Well here's this there's here's this picture and it was different. It was taken out of a little Cessna airplane flying over this clear cut, looking down Mm -hmm. and amid all the destruction, this kind of scattered, you know, pickup sticks remains of a forest was this one giant tree standing. And all of a sudden everyone's ears kinda perked up and and over the next couple of weeks talking with my editor there, uh, one of my colleagues, we, the central question that came out that emerged was, uh, you know, how did this happen uh, and who saved it? You know, who is the person? Somebody must have been walking through that forest, most likely a timber worker, a logger, yeah. and stood under this enormous tree, what turned out to be uh, the second largest Douglas fir in the country, one of the biggest trees uh, in the country, twenty
0: stories high, twenty right? stories tall. Yeah, high.
2: It has enough wood to frame, uh, you know, three or four two thousand square foot houses. Uh, it's worth, you know, an estimated sort of fifty, sixty thousand dollars in kind of raw timber value. Potentially a bit more if it's used in like, you know, nice tables and beams right. and stuff. Anyway, so that was the big question that came came out was like find the guy, find the person yeah. who saved this tree, yeah. and find out why. And all of a sudden, it went from this kind of hard to picture issue. Uh, that everyone kind of had heard about everyone kind of knew about to all of a sudden you've got a character mm-hmm. You have a result mm-hmm. and you have a motivation and you have definitely some kind of tension yeah. because We knew that it had to have been a logger and to save a tree is something unusual for a logger to do yes. And so all of a sudden there's all these questions that emerge. So that was really the guiding force for it and then that was the thing that emerged in a little bit in writing the article and then a lot in writing the book was you know all of these different players have gone into these forests whether they're timber workers or activists or you know first nations or uh businesses um all these different groups politicians mm-hmm. and have seen some kind of different value held within those forests or held within the bark of those trees and you and that was the big theme that kind of came out was like, pick apart these motivations. What and almost kind of asked the question to the reader in the end, mm-hmm. what would you do in his stead, in his boots? Would you have saved this big tree or would you have moved on and let it succumb to its fate? And then the other kind of big thing was that emerged was kind of the environmental movement on the West Coast is going through a really interesting time right now. Um, 25 years ago we just had the anniversary of the clackwood sound protest the war in the woods mm-hmm. which is a big big conflict over uh, two main areas on vancouver island um that exploded it was this massive massive conflict and yeah. uh you know david suzuki was highly involved and and all these celebrities were involved and artist robert bateman was painting and and so a lot of people kind of had figured that that conflict was over that that thing was done um and that yeah, as I kind of say in the book, that the war was over, that the, you know, the conflicts over these forests had been, had been resolved. Right. And yet the environmental movement is now kind of trying to find its footing and and old growth forests have now entered this kind of pantheon of issues. We've got tankers, we've got pipelines being built, Mm -hmm. we've got the plight of the southern resident orcas, we've got um, salmon, all of these issues on the west coast that are now taking the place of what potentially was just one main issue at that time not to mention climate change. So the attention on forests is now competing with all of these other sure. uh, issues. And so it's put the environmental activists who are old growth forest focused uh, in a really tough position. And so what they ideally, all these groups, what they want to do is find an image, find something that's going to resonate yeah. beyond the issue. Right. And we saw that this summer with that uh Uh, orca mother right who's carrying her calf for 17 days Mm -hmm. and everybody from the New York Times you know to my local paper on the island were writing about it and that one image was so emotional so devastating Mm -hmm. so heartbreaking that it raised so much awareness about the now 74 southern residents orcas that are left uh, in the world so much more than you know, general op eds about the plight of the orca or whatever. You, one image. One image. Yeah. One it's a character. Yes, it's anthropomorphized. It's ingrained in my head. Right. And yeah. it's it's so, so sad. And and Big Lonely Doug is similar to that. Um it's a tree that you see it, you don't it doesn't even need a caption. Mm-hmm. Uh you see this image immediately there's so much more than just a tree. There's so much more than just a clear cut or a perfect image of a forest. So yeah, I mean that was the those are the kind of the big themes that really, really stuck out was you know, the state of the environmental activism, how this tree went from one logger who saved it to a tree kind of known all over the place. Now, yeah. you know, in this week, uh, this exhibit is launching at the AGO and at the National Gallery in Ottawa, uh, where Edward Bratinsky, one of the most famous environmental photographers in the world has yes. created this life-size augmented reality, Big Lonely dug within the AGO in the National Gallery. I mean, that how it went from this logger standing in front of a tree and saying no to that is fascinating.
0: That is so cool.
2: Yeah. And well, you're I, writing
0: a book about that. And now it's larger than even you probably imagined.
2: Totally. And much, much larger than Dennis Cronin, the logger. Ever imagined. Imagine.
0: So what was the process like writing the manuscript? Because it's a lot different, as you now know, from writing an article. You have the idea and you kind of know how it's going to end. You have the pieces, but sitting down to organize that into a narrative and kind of shutting out the outside world, what was writing a manuscript like for you? Was it an easy process? Was it challenging to find that time to say no to people and kind Mm -hmm. of shut yourself away? Where did you write it?
2: Uh, The Walrus very kindly gave me a six month leave to go and do it. Incredible. So I had six months of focused time, but I also had six months to write the book in. Which is short. Which is short. I, I think there's a lot of kind of asking around. There's some people who you know might be working and, and slowly working on a manuscript over a couple of years and um I think Nancy and uh, my house of Nancy, my publisher and and the walrus wanted it sooner mm-hmm. they had kind of a deadline for when they wanted to launch this new imprint yeah. and so I had to hit that yeah. and like I could not miss November 1st uh deadline
0: which is on the flip side, it's sometimes really nice to have a deadline because it keeps mm-hmm. you accountable. Whereas if you have a never-ending deadline, For sure. you'll never get it done. For
2: sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and that was, that was looming on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And come September 1st, I was panicking. So it was really great that I had that amount of time. So I went back to the West Coast, based out of Victoria, spent a lot of time up in Port Renfrew and Lake Cowichan. Um, yeah, camping up and down the island and then working on it. And yeah, a little bit of time on on a boat on just off Salt Spring for a couple of weeks and uh yeah so I had some great the locations were great it was really really inspiring to be out there yeah. um but I did not find it easy by any means yeah. uh I think and I still don't know if I did it right mm-hmm. I don't think I was the most efficient way of doing it
0: I don't think anybody does it right right yeah, yeah.
2: but I I don't know looking back I th- and it was nice that my biggest fear was just to stop and get stuck mm-hmm. And the nice thing about this kind of book, I think, is that as opposed to maybe writing fiction, is that there's always more research to do. There was always somebody else I could talk to. And so whenever I got, uh, you know, pages and pages done and I got to a point where I was like, okay, I got to stop. I would just pick up the phone and call somebody and have a really fascinating conversation with an ecologist or drive up the coast of Port Renfrew and go camping for three days and, and talk to a bunch of loggers. Yeah. Um, or just do kind of field reporting up there. And that completely cleared my head, got me way more information and I could just come back and bang out more stuff. So it was, it was a nice balance back and forth between yeah. that. And then I'd go to the archives or I'd go to the library and pull out all the newspapers and yeah. uh, to go through some of the historical stuff and read read tons of books and stuff. But it was a really great balance between all those. Mm-hmm. And it kind of tapped into the magazine stuff with doing first person uh, interviews and reporting. And
1: yeah.
0: yeah. You used all assets of your journalistic skills. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. Did you ever find that it was too much information? Is it kind of information overload? How do I distill this down into a narrative?
2: Yeah, I, I had a couple moments where I was convinced that it wasn't a book. I was, early on, um, I, had an, I had a chat with one of my, um, you know, literary idols, who I won't mention. Uh, who said, you know, there's, there's like great books that should have stayed magazine articles that just like started as a magazine article, or there are great books that were written that potentially shouldn't have been a book. They should have just been a 6,000 word magazine piece. Right. Um, and that kind of put tons of fear into me because it's a fairly simple story. You know, when you break it down to it's, it's like core bits, it is a 3,000 word magazine article of a guy who saves a tree and then the tree turns into something bigger. Um, but even in conversations with my editor, we quickly realized that we were cutting out all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. All of these tributaries, we were just hacking back. Yeah. And uh, they were like, very naturally could have been opened up. Yeah. Um, but I, had, I still had a few moments where I was like, I don't know, this doesn't feel... I feel like I'm just like throwing in filler. I feel like I don't know where I'm going with some of this stuff. I know it's important. Mm-hmm. And then... I would say sometime halfway through the summer, it was, I think I get what the bigger point is here. Some of the issues that I was talking about before um, with all these different players seeing a different kind of value yeah. within the tree and within the forest, that became that overarching umbrella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I could hang everything under that umbrella, then then it's all going to kind of make sense. People can write tons and tons of words and right. fill pages and pages and pages, and pages yeah. but to get them that at least feel coherent and feel like they're they're all relevant. And like you
0: said, under one theme or thesis. Yeah.
2: And like there's a lot of great books about trees out there. Like John Valiant's book, The Golden Spruce, was yeah. like the seminal tree book.
0: Yeah, he won the Governor General's award yeah. for that one. Yeah.
2: And and my you know, I, I did read that book halfway through the process, which was a big mistake. Because it's <laughs> yeah. it's so good. And I was like, I'm I can't write this book. And then I realized like I'm I i can not recreate John's book. There's more you know that was twenty years ago. There's tons of updates to this story. Ultimately, a, a very different story. His has got this incredible true crime narrative to it with these fascinating characters, and mine's like, I think a very like emotional story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that and so that, but that those were definitely the 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 toughest times was realizing what parts of the interviews and the research could I fit together into something that made sense yeah. as kind of one as one thing and that we do that with with in editing and at the magazine all the time is people pack stuff in and very quickly a 1500 1500 word commission is a 3000 word draft and you have to cut half of it out right and it's no fault of the writer it just people do that all the time you you fill it in you think this is interesting and and then you have to really kind of hone it back to what that main point is and yeah. You know, maybe it isn't a story that has three characters. Maybe it's a story that just has two or one. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that a bit with the book with, with my editor. It was, um, We definitely cut out at least 10,000 words out of it, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it was just things that I had gone on to a, too much of a tangent or it felt a little bit too current, just like really current because this issue is evolving so fast. Right. Yeah, but I, I was in really good hands with my editor. I probably did too much editing as I was going. Mm-hmm. Um and I can kind of tell that sometimes when people file, and they, which is sometimes really good because yeah. they, they'll do like before they file their first draft, they'll do a couple drafts themselves. But again, my worry was that I was just going to continue to read it. And I had it the final two weeks. I was just reading it over and over and over again and constantly changing things. And I was like, I got to send this. in. And it was just got to the point where I was pretty much probably making it worse, mm-hmm. tinkering too much. And I just needed feedback and I needed... And to start that process.
0: Amazing. What has the publishing process been like for you getting that draft to a book that you see in store? And what is that feeling like seeing your book
2: on shelf? It's very strange. Yeah. Very, very strange. I feel like it happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. The whole thing is just so, it's so weird and overwhelming. I had a moment uh, when I was in Victoria and my publicist had asked me to go to a couple bookstores in Victoria to go and sign their copies, which I didn't know was a thing. Uh, so I went uh, to Monroe's Books, which yes. is a uh, fairly uh, famous bookstore in, famous. Mm-hmm, in, in Canada. My favorite bookstore. Yes. And I, That's amazing. yeah, and I, when I was a kid, uh, and my dad used to take me over to Victoria, he would drop me at Monroe's. And go and run errands. Yeah. And there was this beautiful stuffed chair at the back near the kids section, like the sci fi fantasy section. And I would sit in this chair and just grab a book off the shelf and start reading it. Amazing. And very often, my dad would then come back, you know, an hour, an hour and a half later, run it with his errands done and either buy the book or I just put it back on the shelf and off we go. And it was, it was cheap babysitting. It was like a library. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I love that place. I really love that place. And so to go back, and to, like, sign a bunch of copies and see it on their shelf, that was that was pretty cool.
0: That's incredible. That's a full circle yeah. life moment.
2: Yeah, a little kid being so excited and then, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. But the whole, I mean, everything has been um, so much fun. Mm-hmm. So much fun. It's been tiring, um, some of the travel, but I, I cannot complain at all.
0: And you're in the middle of it kind of now.
2: I've done a few, so we had the launch on... Uh, in Toronto. And then I've done event in Ottawa and in Victoria. And then I've got another one in Toronto coming a couple in Toronto coming up and then Banff. Um, and then a few more in the West coast, I think in the spring.
0: While you mentioned Banff, you're a finalist in the Banff mountain Mm -hmm. contest book awards, Banff mountain book awards, which is really cool. And there's a big prize on the line for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, how did you get involved in that? And when do they announce the winner?
2: They announced the winner, I think it's October fifteenth. Okay. Very soon. Pretty soon, yeah. And then the the ceremony is I think on, on the second of November. Yeah. Um uh, I just they asked me to submit the book to it and they have like an, a mountain environment category. I feel like you're gonna win. I'm up against a very good book about a wolf, which I've got on my shelf <laughs> over there. Um so I was and and uh, another great book and and I was joking with somebody that it's like the classic battle between flora and fauna. Exactly. And yes. so I'm, I'm hoping flora wins. But
0: well, I can't wait to see what the outcome is on that.
2: Yeah, I was really thrilled about yeah. that. Yeah.
0: So the, with the publishing process, mm-hmm. you it was six months to write the book, and then how long was it before it was on shelf? And what was it like dealing with your publisher? It's it was a new imprint mm-hmm. you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that for people who don't really yeah know the
2: Sure. Publishing world. So I filed my first draft November 1st of last year and then uh, my editor essentially said thanks I'll get back to you in a month <laughs> and that was a very peculiar month because I had no idea whether what I wrote was complete garbage and they would say thanks but no thanks. Right. Um, or they'd say it's okay and and it needs a ton of work you know go back and rewrite all these things. I had yeah. no idea what the feedback uh, would be and so I got... The f- essentially the first email back uh, from my editor, I think it was right before Christmas. I think it was sometime mid-December. So it had been uh, five weeks or something mm-hmm. uh, of not knowing. Holding your breath the whole time. Essentially, yeah. yeah. So got some good feedback. And then, and then we chatted on the phone and she sent over some notes. And then it was quite big picture stuff, you know, even like maybe this chapter should go here after. Or maybe, maybe this chapter. Totally, yeah. Oh. And uh, you should open with this and you should move this further to the end. And, uh, you know, this is something I think we should cut, you know, we need a little bit more here, a little bit less here, that kind of stuff, Yeah. pretty big picture stuff. And so, um, I think I had, um, for most of January, I was working on that Mm -hmm. and, and then it, it kind of got more and more, you know, it, I guess it's a bit similar to a magazine piece. You start with kind of the big picture stuff. So you don't, totally overwhelm someone with line and edit, line editing and copy editing and and moving right. paragraphs around so we just got kind of more and more through january february march more and more like tighter and more and more focused and down to the details
0: yeah. now you're doing grammar and period yeah, that, placement and yeah, commas for, and everything yeah and the that, very end.
2: yeah and that came right at the end when we did the final uh look through it and then the copy edit mm-hmm. um and then a proof um and that was all through the spring and there were still a few little details and And because the issue was is still going on and because it's still evolving, there's a few things I was still slotting in probably a bit too late. But I felt like it was really important. So there's like actually three paragraphs that or four paragraphs that we slotted in uh quite quite late and had to get them recopied and that kind of stuff. But that's just because things were changing. Mm -hmm. So that was through the spring and then it pretty that pretty much finished in yeah, April, May. And then it's done. And then you know you start i started to see the cover mock-up which was really neat
0: did you get a say in that
2: i did kind of yeah. yeah i did yeah i'd sent over some photographs and we and we talked a little bit about it and then they mocked it up and i yeah i thought it was great um and
0: it is great i really love the
2: cover it's i like that they've got a, like a scale there's a little person in it so you can really see oh, yeah. really see how big it is little bits and pieces like that we started talking with the there's a photo spread in the inside uh, eight uh, pictures and had to get all those pictures sort of the rights and all that kind of stuff and then we start talking about the map yeah. uh indexing which was something i didn't know was a i had to do and also that i had to pay for as a writer because um, it's non-fiction because it's non-fiction and uh i i honestly i didn't know where and who did did, did indexes i just said i had no idea and that was something that there's professional indexers out there who do I'll that be for books <laughs> yeah. and and that fee comes out of your out of your advance so I had to yeah I had to pay a fair amount for an index and and it's funny because you know you look everything you know from in between from page one to the final page is the writer's responsibility in terms of costs everything on the outside so commissioning cover photo and cover art and and all the design that's the publisher everything on the inside is all the, author. the authors
0: that's a good way of explaining it I haven't heard it really explained yeah, it like that before. that's
2: how that's at least how mine was and and yeah I'm pretty sure that's that standard yeah, yeah. But it was just surprising because there's all these other things that, you know, your advance kind of gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But.
0: Yeah, just little chunks everywhere. Yeah. And then the author really gets paid peanuts by the end.
2: Yep, it's not a ton. Did you
0: get any say, I'm always curious about paperback versus uh, hardcover?
2: No, and I don't know. No, I didn't. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not sure. I know with some of the larger publishing houses, they will go to hardback they start um, with it usually yeah they start with it and then and go then paperback they, yeah yeah and I get that like I'm brand new you know it, it costs a lot of money to print so hardbound expensive. And I was I honestly I was thrilled that I got color photographs in the in the insert yeah,
0: that is rare it's yeah. very it's expensive to do that totally yeah yeah,
2: yeah so I, I probably would have taken that over a hardbound book I would have too yeah, yeah.
0: oh it's a beautiful book yeah I'm just yeah. always curious about that but yeah, so that was the publishing process. Yeah,
2: so that took us right to right to June, really. And then it was the arc started going out. Mm-hmm. So that's when you get to see it actually kind of printed in your hand. And there was a few little tweaks left. I think that was pre-copy editing, actually, and pre-proofing the arcs when they went out. Yeah. Um, I'm always surprised when arcs go out that... Even after you proofread and copyright, there's still
0: mistakes in books on shelves that you see. Oh, yeah. And it goes through so many eyes, but just, I think yeah. the human brain... My can... girlfriend
2: caught one. So she I'm did? Mistake. Yeah, reading the book.
0: Really? Yeah. I'm going to have to look for it now. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: but yeah, but it's things, you. it's been read so many times and yeah. you don't know how it isn't caught... But it's. I think the brain just connects it and thinks that it's there if it's a misspelled word, oh, right. and it's yeah. easy to miss. Yeah, that's okay. No, and we,
2: you know, we we make mistakes at the magazine all the time, and it's it'll go through, you know, five editors' eyes mm-hmm. and a fact checker and a copy editor, and and then it's like, oh man, how did we miss that? Yeah. And it's typically not a spelling mistake. Sometimes it's a continuity thing, or and you just like you read it a ton yeah. and it, that's why it's so so important to get fresh eyes on it mm-hmm. and so we sent the book to a proofreader who had never read anything never read a word before and it was like completely fresh eyes yeah. uh, and then those things typically become more glaring and jump out a bit more but yeah so then, the, then if you finally get it and it's kind of it's got pages and it's got it's not just a word document and so
0: what was it like opening the box getting that
2: first book in your hand it's it's so the whole thing it was just so weird it was like in a weird way, people have described it this way before, but um, you spend so much time rearing this thing yeah. and kind of bringing it into the world and, and doting over its growth and every single yeah. like idiosyncrasy of it. Yeah. and then all of a sudden it's done mm-hmm. and you know it's completely out of your control to be read and interpreted or misinterpreted or uh, reviewed and you have no say on that you know you can read it and anybody else can read it and come away with a totally different idea Mm -hmm. uh you know you can use it as a source of good or evil if you potentially wanted to depending on your perspective yeah um with a lot of books and you have no control over that as an author it's gone you know it. people are going to say the best things about it and the worst things about it and you and that's a weird kind of control that that I had to give up, that we all, right. you know, you have to give up. Yeah. When, I guess when you publish anything, you put a magazine article out or a newspaper article out mm-hmm. to the world to be picked apart yeah. and and criticized and stuff. And and it's nice getting, obviously, uh, getting feedback from, you know, some friends who read it, uh, read early drafts, mm-hmm. and then all your the editors and everyone at the, at the publishing house to give you feedback. But even still, you don't know, you know, how... Uh, your parents are going to like it or you're not going to know how your sources are going to like it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't know how people who are, you know, on the front lines of this issue are going to like it or interpret it or hate it. Um, And so it was opening that box was like, I can't change it. I can't change one more. I've been changing words for a year now and I can't touch it. It's done. And that was a hard moment to to give up on it to give it over to other people well there's that
0: saying done is better than perfect
2: exactly yeah Mm -hmm. and i but the hard thing is i can't read it now i've i've read i've had to read at events read sections and and even then i'm i was like i shouldn't have written it that way or i should have changed yeah it's hard to turn off the editing brain
0: i guess i hear actors they can't go to screenings of their own movies it's the same thing they can't watch themselves on something that they've worked on right how did you pick the passages to read? Or did somebody else pick those for you at your book signings?
2: No, I I picked I picked the one that I read at the launch mm-hmm. and um and then yeah, I not one Victoria um and they were just sections that had either a a kind of self-contained mm-hmm. arc, like a little mini arc yeah. that can be told, you know, maybe 6 or 7 pages that isn't I'm not going to be reading for 15 or 20 minutes and putting people to sleep. <laughs> Uh, just something that's small and kind of bite-sized, yeah. but that has a self-contained arc within it. Um, and then I, the ones I picked introduced some of the characters, uh, introduced a, f- a little bit of the themes in towards that, and then were quite colorful, that talked about the landscape and, and, and were fairly oh, illustrative that. about that.
0: I really am curious to ask you about social media, especially mm. as a nonfiction author. I hear all the time that you need to have a platform, you need to build this writing platform, you need readers to get... A publishing deal you kind of went a different way but what are your thoughts on merging the two social media and writing do you think it's a necessary evil because I my idea of a writer is you're kind of in a cabin in the woods mm-hmm. but then you have to come back and kind of put on a different hat to try to sell it
2: I love the cabin in the woods image yes everyone loves I love that, that image yeah. yeah I use it a lot yeah and I and for a long period of of writing the book was in my tent or on a sailboat in the ocean, yeah. um, neither of which had Wi-Fi or anything, mm-hmm. and uh, and then yeah, renting this little cabin up in Port Renfrew, I I stayed in for uh, for quite a while.
0: That sounds like my dream.
2: You know, if I had just spent that six months and had never tweeted about it, had never posted pictures about what I was doing, mm-hmm. fewer people would have known about the story right. and fewer people would have been like, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to keep an eye out for when that book comes out.
0: I found out about you and the story through Instagram.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the thing. And if so, I, I I think there's a there's a romance to isolating yourself into a cabin mm-hmm and being throw or something or but that's a that's a pretty old-fashioned way of looking at writing right now Mm -hmm. and i i see it translate not just into um self-congratulating an award nomination or like promoting yourself uh and kind of shameless marketing but actually translating into real results and we see it at the magazine all the time where Will share an article, or somebody will share an article, and they'll use the long reads hashtag, uh, or 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 tag it to long form or something. And with that one hashtag, one tweet, it gets picked up and shared by Longreads, which is a massive uh, aggregator of long form articles online. Yeah. Uh, will translate to tens of thousands of views for us wow. from essentially from one tweet. Wow! Tens of thousands. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of aggregators that that when our stories get picked up, they do gangbusters and it's all from potentially one person sharing it or one person, as you said, seeing a post on Instagram and then you never know who else is watching Mm -hmm. or a retweet that, you know, somebody with, you know, 30,000 followers or a hundred thousand followers shares it. And then all of a sudden it's, it's translating into Mm -hmm. real world numbers. And, um, I benefited from the original article was picked up by Longreads and picked up by Dig and a bunch of those places, and oh, yeah. and who knows how much of that actually translated to the book being popular or the book the book being an idea. Right. Because True. in the end, the article to everybody's surprise, the magazine was like one of our top ten uh, articles written of that year. Mm-hmm. Everybody was shocked by that, myself included. And that was because you're humble. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it, it was a story about a tree. Like of all the pieces that we write, we were all very, very surprised that a, not a story about a tree was one of those in the top 10. Yeah.
0: But I think it, it's because you humanize the tree. It's kind of, there's, like you said, there's a, and there's a bigger story. Right. I was very pleased. By yes, that. of very course.
2: <laughs> but it, I think by saying that, and when it came time to uh, talking about the potential of a book, mm-hmm. we could say, well, this was one of the top 10 articles of that year and there's an appetite for these kind of stories and there's an appetite for this uh, in potentially a longer format mm-hmm. uh and so those so yes you know having a twitter account and having an instagram account um it does feel icky sometimes and i'm not good at it i honestly i don't know many people who are good at it who are like perfect at it yeah. Because there's people who annoy me on on Twitter all the time because they promote their stuff too much. Right. Uh, my fear is that I promote my stuff too much and yeah. that I'm it is starting to get like I'm bragging, and yeah. I hate that. Because yeah. uh,
0: to me, the whole th- idea of social media, when I really think about it and distill it down, it's all bragging. Anything you put on there, totally. So for it's hard to kind of I get that feeling,
2: and I think I think to not be crazy and not drive yourself crazy, you have to separate the fact that you have to share uh, with kind of the intention um, of not trying to get attention, mm-hmm. but that the attention is the byproduct of sharing it, not really the, the goal of... Or like the, the pure intent of sharing, yes. of, of tweeting it or, or sharing a post there's it. There's an art to it. I think so. And I think there's some people... Yeah. They're just like too self-congratulatory. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or I don't know. And I think there's a humble way to do it yeah. and kind of a funny way to do it. Agreed. And I think the moment you start taking it a bit too seriously, yes. um, the moment you start to fail at it.
0: A hundred percent.
2: It is kind of, I think it is a necessary, I don't even know if I'd call it a necessary evil. I think it's a necessary platform. It's a necessary arm of, mm-hmm. of being a writer now. And, uh, I think there are ways to be a totally successful uh, newspaper journalist or magazine writer or author yeah. and not be on any of these things. But I also found there were so many benefits, even in writing there. It was, you know, people talk about how it's such a distraction, but sometimes it's a good distraction. And, and, and I found it as a pretty useful tool mm-hmm. to find people, even in stories. Like you can, True. I use, I don't really use Facebook, but I use messenger to contact people. And because it, particularly in places like India, uh, everybody uses it. Nobody uses texting, really. No. Uh, everyone uses Facebook Messenger and, like, WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. I think you have to find where these silver linings and all these things are, and like any tool, use them appropriately and honestly. And Do you have a favorite platform that you personally like to use? I know a lot of people hate Twitter, and I hate Twitter, too. <laughs> but Love hate. It is a love hate, and I think you can you can choose who to follow, obviously you can choose who to follow, mm-hmm. but if someone is really annoying you, just mute them or you unfollow them. Yeah. And I, so I, I get a lot of my news from there. Uh, I follow yeah. smart people uh, and journalists and writers and they, and I get a ton of news from there um, and a, a ton of stories and, uh, and it's also can be really funny. Yeah. Um, it also has a really, really horrible dark side, yeah, uh, yeah which is just nasty and, and gross. Um, I haven't quite figured out Instagram. I'm, I don't know if I'm new to it, but I, mm-hmm. I think I'm bad at it. No, um, I don't think so. Well, I just don't know. I, I got into it thinking I like taking pictures. So I'll just share some pictures right. and it felt very personal and it was only people I knew. Right. And if I didn't know you, I didn't accept you. And my account is private.
0: Well, it's like your emails that you sent to your family. Exactly. I think was... that's a normal human reaction. Yeah,
2: well, but I think a lot of people with Twitter or or Instagram or any of them really th- throw their entire life out there yeah. and I'm a little bit, bit more private mm-hmm. I don't want people to know exactly where I am and exactly what I'm doing mm-hmm. or every thought that pops in my head because right. there's some crazy thoughts pop in my head and I don't want to share all of everything yeah. the um, line
0: gets blurred though for a lot of people mm-hmm. I think they they're well intentioned but it's easy for you to veer off because everybody else is doing it and this yeah. is what you're supposed to do yeah. so people lose themselves but so far you've got a good compass it sounds like
2: I don't, I think I, I don't partake a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but I do feel like, you know, it is a bit of a community. So often the more you give, the more you get Mm -hmm. and, uh, within kind of reason.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. Um,
2: so I found that I'll share, I mean, I, and I've seen, I've seen results even recently. It's weird to call them results, but it's like one tweet and then five people come to your event and maybe five people buy your book. Right. And that really translates. And, and if I think if you're doing it honestly and appropriately mm-hmm. and and being a bit humble with the whole thing, mm-hmm. it can actually really benefit you uh, in, in small ways.
0: It's a very good way of saying it. Yeah. But it's true. As soon as you write the book, it kind of becomes a commodity. So yeah, I know you don't like to say
2: results, but it is. It's, it's positive results of your hard work. Well, and for any... I would say most writers, 95% of them, um, and definitely all full-time authors and freelancers, mm-hmm. you have to sell yourself mm-hmm. You ha- and you have to be a little bit, um, you know, unabashed with the whole thing. Like you, you can't be shy really. Mm-hmm. And there's some people that I really admire and they do it really well and they don't, they don't push it too hard, yeah. but you do, you have to sell yourself. You have to have some kind of reputation. Right. And there's people that I follow uh, or I'll see a story that they've written that they've shared on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I'll reach out to them and say, I love that story. Here's my email. Consider pitching us. Yeah. So that is that is a direct result for them. I would never have seen them. Great. Tour- Twitter. Yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of benefits to it. And I know there's a lot of uh, really, really dark, nasty stuff as well. But um, yeah, I think if you've got it, I think you've come into it with a pretty good head. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a pretty great tool. Yeah,
0: Overall, I and like your take on it. And I like hearing people's thoughts on it. Because I go back and forth myself a lot.
2: Yeah, I think it's also just kind of knowing, being okay with with mm-hmm. your brand. And that's a weird thing. Yeah. It was weird. I was talking to a friend of mine your who was brand. like, you've got a, of course you've got a brand. I was like, I don't have a brand. He's she's like, yeah, you do. It's trees and, and like... <laughs> And just being okay with that, and being a little bit nerdy with right. with what you're trying to push and your story, yeah. and I find that I do, and I realized that, and I started scrolling through my Twitter channel and I was like, "Wow, it's all trees and all plants and all <laughs> nature stuff and animals. Like that's that's fine. Yeah. And if people know me for that, that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's what I like. Yeah. And it and it also shows to potentially a publisher or potentially a mega, an editor that you want to work with that you have an interest in something mm-hmm. that you're writing about it, you're sharing about it, you're reading about it, mm-hmm. and that you might be someone that they could potentially commission yeah. uh, because you're knowledgeable about that. It's happened to me dozens of times with seeing a writer, n- looking at their timeline, looking at what they're sharing, mm-hmm. looking at the articles they're re- they're writing, looking at what they're saying about the subject and then reaching out to them. Yeah. And o- honestly, often in the magazine, we'll see something that gets posted on Facebook, a small throwaway post right. or a Twitter thread. And we will think, there's a story there and we'll reach out the person and it'll turn into something.
0: That's amazing. Do you ever worry though, last question kind of on the brand social mm-hmm. media side, if you brand yourself one way and then you kind of want to pivot and write about world war II mm-hmm. or romance letters that it's it's hard because you people are unique. We have so many layers and mm-hmm. interests but on these platforms you only see a little snapshot. I know for me that's true. I'm a lot more than glamping and whatever people see on there how do you kind of write about all of these things
2: I mean that's that's is tricky because yeah. I think the the inclination of a lot of editors is to find somebody who's got who's experienced and knowledgeable in their subject yes. doesn't maybe not have maybe not have a beat mm-hmm. but have something like a beat yeah. um and to commission them purely because of that yeah And it's happened sometimes where a writer's got a great idea and we've, we haven't really turned them down, but we've we've questioned whether or not they'd be the best writer for it because they, that's not their thing.
0: Right. That's interesting.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a fault of, of us uh, on the editing side. Um, And I don't know if it's a fault of the writer because it's really natural to, to uh, want to write about the things that you're interested in, and if that happens to be one thing, if that happens to just be trees, then mm-hmm. then go for it. Um, I think the danger is that you can exhaust your your options. Right. Um, there's not a ton of story. I'm only talking about trees because it's my thing. But like, there's <laughs> yeah. not a ton of stories. It's about your trees. brand. Yeah, it's my brand. <laughs> Even though I did last issue write about bonsai trees. Yeah. Um, in the October issue. You diverged there. I, yeah, I went small so there is a bit of a danger that you do get pigeonholed. It just takes a bit more effort to kind of broaden mm-hmm. uh, and take a bit more chances and to pitch some stories that might be uh, a bit more challenging to you personally. Mm-hmm. And even if it does take a long time, like that love letter story took me a long time and it was out of my comfort zone and it was personal. And I hadn't at that point, you know, when I first started, I hadn't written anything personal. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so
0: but you, com- you felt compelled to write it, which is the important thing. And I think that will come through in the writing is that even if it's not your brand or your beat, but the writing is good and the story is compelling, you can see that passion coming through.
2: Yeah, I hope so. Ultimately, a good story is a good story. And right. if you if you know what your story is mm-hmm. and you've done enough research, that'll come through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm never going to turn down a magazine pitch that uh, is written by you know, like a car expert uh, and they're writing about, you know, divorce or something. Right. Because if the story is good enough and if they've done the research uh, and they show that they have something new to say, Mm -hmm. we'll for sure take it. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's actually uh, to the benefit of the story is because it comes at it from a new angle, you know. And we even do that at the magazine. We'll, you know, we'll give a second draft or a third draft to somebody who's... the least likely person you know like I'll read something about you know opera or or modern dance or something and I just not my thing but (laughs) I come at it from a totally different perspective than an editor who's knows the subject and knows the background knows the history and knows yeah and that's it can often be the best pair of eyes is somebody who knows nothing about the subject
0: you kind of have a better look read on it because you're not so in the minutiae a little bit
2: totally and also that um there's a there's most readers aren't going to be experts mm-hmm. in modern dance or the opera. Right. Right. So if it, right. if it, if it can appeal to somebody who knows a subject really well and also somebody who has no idea about it, then you've done something successful. That's true. Um, and even with this, like I didn't want with the book, I yeah. didn't want it to be just a book for tree lovers or just a book for West coast environmental activists, yeah. you know, uh, hopefully something that, more people will get something out of which was great because my editor at House of Nancy was somebody who you know not a hiker or a camper or a tree person right. Um, and came at it from that perspective which was great which for is perfect you, yeah, to yeah counterbalance you totally because I'm literally in the trees and and <laughs> yeah. and she had a very very different perspective on it which was great
0: even for me just to put my two cents in I'm probably the same as your editor. I didn't know a lot about all of this before, but I was drawn to the story of the logger and the tree, Dennis is the logger. And I'm learning so much as I go and now I'm finding myself Googling articles about this thing. So you've kind of cracked open a new topic for me. And I think for a lot of other readers.
2: I'm thrilled by that.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what is your ideal life like as a writer, Mm -hmm. as a human in this life really?
2: I've had a lot of things change in the past uh, few months. Um, moved apartments and, you uh, know, with my girlfriend mm-hmm. and the book coming out. Um, and even this past year, coming back off book leave and coming back to Toronto, which in, in a way I was kind of, I wasn't dreading it, but I was really curious as to what that transition back from mm-hmm. my home on the West Coast, uh, my old home on the West Coast to my current one here yeah. would be like. And, um it's made me realize that I'm very, very, very lucky here. i very lucky to have a position in journalism in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it's not an easy time right now. Um, and I'm feel very, very fortunate with a lot of things right now. Um, so the next five years, I mean, I'd be, I'd be very, very happy to stay at the Walrus uh, and continuing to, to do and work with our great team there and, and do what we do. And, uh, and I'd love to write another book. Mm-hmm. Um, I really did like the pace of it. I really did like uh, the big picture uh, conceptualizing and p- putting all these puzzle pieces together. I found that a really rewarding uh, process. Yeah. And so I'd love to get another big project like that on the go and somehow figure out a way to balance full-time office work at the magazine with a side project uh, that's as big as a book yeah
0: it's kind of like running a marathon it's like writing a book
2: yeah i actually that's funny because i i described that to a friend of mine uh as in just that way um and she's a sprinter yeah and i was like you know it's you start this thing and you don't really know where you're going you know there's a roadmap in front of you you know roughly how long you have to go and at what pace you have to go but uh so much can change along that route and um and I guess that's that's the same with with me in the next five years. Like I'm um I don't wanna to set too much of a roadmap. I'd um I'm yes, I'm pitching another book and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it and I've got a few magazine articles coming out soon and yeah. and some of them I'm pretty pretty excited about. But I'm very, very happy with the things that have happened in the past year and particularly in the past few months. That's good. Um so yeah, I I'd, I'd think I'd like to stay in Toronto for the next little bit. It's funny, I don't have any draw to go back to the west coast now. Hmm. Um, uh, it was it was a really great break, but yeah. uh, okay. maybe that is separating from my brand a little bit now <laughs> uh, to come back to that. I think maybe it is moving away from from trees. I gave away half my house plants.
0: You did? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, well, there's some good plants in here though. Yeah. I kind of like, as you were talking, it was making me think I always ask about the future, but I like that you kind of said you're really happy in the now. Like people don't really dwell on in those in-between moments of like the last thing they did, which is publish a book mm-hmm. for you, and the next thing you can so it's good that you're just happy. You're not really thinking too far ahead. I mean, you're working on things, but I like yeah. that you're enjoying where you are and the fruits of your labor.
2: Well, I and I also think that there's um for a few people my age uh, in this industry, there's almost kind of an expectation that you're gonna get like amazing magazine deals, and you're gonna get amazing book contracts, and you're gonna get paid a ton. Mm-hmm. And maybe not paid a ton. Everyone knows that the rates aren't great, but that you're gonna you're gonna get published. And um, I've been very slow with that, and I've been very cautious with that, and I haven't expected anything to come my way. And all of the you know a nice review of the book or just hearing that, you know, someone has sold out of copies is mm-hmm. just like I'm completely over the moon by that. Yeah. And th- that's the best thing. Um and yeah, there's some few a few things I'd like to do and a few places I'd love to write for in the next year or two. Can and you, I'd you love name to, them? The places I, like. yeah. I mean I'd love to write for the New Yorker, that would be That's your dream, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And there's a few other, you know, Hackeye magazine on in Victoria I'd, I'd love to write for them. I haven't yet. Yeah, I've got a big uh, feature coming out with Outside Magazine uh, soon, which is a story I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, so just sort of taking, being a little bit kind of cautious and modest with those steps, not shooting for the moon quite yet.
0: But I like that you didn't really have any huge expectations, so everything is a win. 100%,
2: yeah. yeah. Everything has been has been a chair in the cake.
0: That's great. Yeah. Before we leave, can you tell us what's coming up in the next few months, where we can Mm -hmm. see you and where we can buy your books and learn more about you on social media? Uh,
2: Yeah. So the book is, it's on Amazon and Indigo and places like that, but it's also at all the best little bookstores everywhere, which is now a great place to buy them. Uh, What's coming up? So October 19th, I'm speaking at the AGO. Uh, on the October 11th this is a bit tentative right now but uh, it's gonna be at the ROM with the Nature Conservancy and then yeah if anyone happens to be in Banff on November 2nd I'm doing a talk there It was part of the festival yeah so those are the big events coming up within the next little bit I've got it at my website which is just my name um, harleyrustad.com and then Twitter and Instagram are uh, at h-m-r-u-s-t-a-d
0: perfect yeah. And last thing, because mm-hmm. I forgot to ask at the beginning, where did the name Harley come from?
2: My Was parents are not bikers at all, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. They're university teachers and my high school principal. They just really like the name. I yeah. love it too. Just-
0: I don't know any other Harleys.
2: Yeah, no, I've, I've only met one other male human Harley. A lot of dogs. A lot of, yeah, a lot of female golden retrievers.
0: But it's a memorable name and it's a good name on the cover of
1: a book.
2: Thank you.
0: That's it for this chapter of the Word Weaver podcast. As always, you can find the show notes at louiseclarejohnson.com slash podcast. All of Harley's links will be left there. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you leave a review and a comment on iTunes as it helps more people find out about the Word Weaver podcast. Until next time.
1: I had a wait with words for a while.